I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. I'm excited to have as my guest today a multi-talented man who has for many years graced our television screens, presenting a myriad of programmes about rivers, cities, art, sailing and mountains, to name a few. If I throw in Smith and Jones, then I'm sure you know exactly who I mean. The brilliant Griff Rhys Jones. So, let's get listening. All right, I'm just going to pull my tea a little bit. Oh, Griff, it's wonderful to have you here. And and when you entered, you said, are we going to talk about music? (laughs) And I said, yes, that's all we're going to talk about. But of course, no, it's not. That's probably the last thing we might talk about. But having said that, you've, you've just asked me, actually... Um, if if I visit Canada mm. quite a lot, and and yes, it is a place. But um, you were in the middle of saying that that you know you live in London, but you often go to concerts when you're not in London when you're travelling. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Well, I mean, I find that I do travel quite a lot because I write uh, I write books and I write articles <laughs> about travel and things like that. And um, and when I get away. I managed to organise my life to see everything and do everything. If I arrive, I particularly love visiting cities. And so if I arrive, I'm sort of I'm restless and I charge out and I see everything. And then I get home. And I, I mean, we were, only in, we were in Vancouver for about five days. The first day we arrived, um, it was a Sunday. And I said to Joe, I said, oh, look, let's just have a look what's on. And the Vancouver uh, Symphony Orchestra... Were had a, an afternoon of, of French romantic uh, music, one kind or another, and uh, and so off we went, and we, we went to watch the um, uh, Symphonie Fantastique, you know, uh, oh. Berlioz, marvelous. But oh, what was wonderful about it, you see, is that you go in to. I love when I'm in a place to go in and experience what Vancouverans are doing. You know, you meet the people of Vancouver mm. all arriving in this uh, in this wonderful place called the Orpheum. Have you it ever is, played there? Absolutely. I've yeah. been with that orchestra several times, actually, over the years. So I know exactly the venue you're talking about. Isn't and it the a surrounding wonderful venue? Area. It is. It actually is. You know, lots of character yes. to it. You know, I, I'm not sure if it's got the best acoustic in the world, but, you know... It it's, was great where we were. It's a great um, historic building which of course would tick a very large box as far well, as you're concerned well it isn't it interesting because it's sort of 2000 i was i was interested in this 2800 people and 97 or something Brilliant. and i spent a lot of my life uh working to sort of save the hackney empire mm, yes. and the hackney empire is of a, is a, of a similar date uh, and built as a musical, and so was so was the Orpheum. It was built as a musical, as a vaudeville yes. place. And when they put, I was fascinated when they put um, uh, a campaign together to save it for the city. But this was in the seventies; they didn't wait until the eighties mm. and nineties, like we did. Um, they, and when they did, they got Jack Benny along to uh, to sort of drum up support for them because he played there. So isn't that wonderful? It's sort of wonderful to get this connection mm. with theatres and places. So we went and we had a marvellous afternoon with mm. plenty of time in the evening to go out and explore more of Vancouver, which we did. And I thought, and then I think, well, uh, when it was Joe's birthday a little while, we all went off to Berlin with a group of friends. And we went, <laughs> and we went to the uh, to the to the uh, to a concert there as well, and at Mahler in that particular case. But you know, <laughs> but it's such a great thing 
to do because, of course, you sit yourself down in a hotel. You don't, you're not going to enjoy yourself watching French TV or Spanish <laughs> TV or something like that. So nothing could be better. We went to Madrid and we went to uh, to the Opera House there. Another great experience of meeting yeah. the sort of Madrid, um, I don't know, the Madrid gentle population going mm. out for an evening to enjoy uh, uh, to enjoy an opera. And I think this started for us. That's interesting. When I, we were in Palermo. Ah, okay. Have you, do you know the opera house in Palermo? I, well, I do believe it or not. You know, <laughs> I've, I've also been to Italy um, a lot over the years, and a lot of the venues we perform at are opera houses, can you believe? So can you yeah. imagine percussion recitals in yes. opera houses? But the, the, the places we've often played there have been so ornate and so grand and so beautiful and, and uh, just not what you would expect or the sort of place you would expect to end up being a solo percussionist no. so I felt very lucky you know well they are um, extraordinary um, institutions yeah. opera houses yep. and uh, uh, to be honest well, I went with Clive Anderson my friend oh, and a few and a couple of people wow. I said well it's a sort of February treat for Joe's birthday <laughs> so we went to Palermo we stayed in a, a beautiful hotel called the Villa d'Este, and we all went to, then to see a production of La uh, uh, I think, at the Opera House, which is the second largest in Palermo in Europe. It's enormous. And we calculated that, <laughs> including the cost of our flights with EasyJet at that time oh. of year, it was cheaper than going to the Royal Opera House. Oh, you know. my. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. And travelling well, there and whatever. Yes, travelling there and staying, and staying for the weekend. Whether that's, that's still true, amazing. I don't know. But it was a sort of an amazing... It's an amazing trip. So it we've is. always sort of, ever since then, yeah. sort of looked out entertainments. And as a result, you do find beautiful performances and moments. Mm. Uh, all uh, We were in... Um, uh, I had a sailing boat. And so we once did a little trip from Cannes to uh, Genoa. To, uh, we went to the opera in Genoa. It's another amazing opera house because it's a 1970s opera house and it's rather... rather, rather but we were also <laughs> sailing down. We sailed down to Naples and we got to Ischia and, the, um, and I had a friend and I said, oh, look, with me, I said, you must come. There's a fantastic garden here. We must go and explore oh, it. Hello. And we went off to explore William Walton's garden, oh, which is amazing. Oh. But in the middle of it, there's a little... Recital house. Oh my gosh! Which I and they had a little concert there for a sort of seventeen-year-old uh, prodigy cellist mm -hmm. who played uh, Tchaikovsky cello music, which I'd never heard before, but was absolutely extraordinary. And it's mm -hmm. like these funny little moments oh. as you travel around are extraordinary. And oh. what I'm ashamed of is that I don't spend more time sort of going off in England and using my every spare moment to do this I can only do it when I'm on holiday yeah, and I don't have a pile of things that I'm supposed to be doing at my desk yes but yes. Do, when you are abroad do you do you find that you combine work and play work and pleasure well together or you know I know my situation if I go to a place to work that's what I do I find it quite difficult to think oh, I'll just go off and go to a museum or a, yes. an art gallery or, you know, up a mountain or something. You know, yes. I, I do find that I'm there to work, that's what I do, and then I get home. Funny well, kind of thing. But two things for me. One is that if I'm on holiday, I always have 
hyperactive holidays, which drives people around me slightly crazy. <laughs> so my my boating experience is all racing boats. So we take this rather old boat, uh, a classic boat, around the Mediterranean. And in between racing, I will lead my crew on great sort of expeditions oh, off in, up into Naples to sort of explore Naples. Uh, or wherever we are. And it's particularly explore places like Mahon and so on. Fantastic. Goodness. And I love it. If I'm working, I love to explore a place. So this comes from working with Mel. Interesting. Now, Mel was is a night bird. And so he would finish a show and not really go to sleep until four or five in the morning because everything that in his life <laughs> happened after the show was over. <laughs> and he'd gather people who would come and could join us on tour. And I, uh, well, I, I, I gave up drink uh, uh, when I was 30. That's when I started drinking. Really? <laughs> I was, well, no, I was teetotal up to about, well, my late 30s. And then when I started travelling to Germany more, my agent there said, oh, you must try our German beer, which I did and very much liked it, you know, and, and have enjoyed beer and wine really since then, you know, for for pleasure and mm. and it's it's lovely but anyway sorry to no 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 i mean because i'm into i'm sorry about another long-winded story but effectively i used to jump up at nine o'clock in the morning and i would wherever i was i'd go to the art gallery <laughs> so i began to discover that britain has all over britain the oh. most amazing often quite slightly forgotten collections of art leads wonderful yes. Uh, Manchester's got lots of fabulous galleries. Mm. Uh, uh, Glasgow, in particular, mm. has an extraordinary uh, collection of uh, of art. And so it becomes a sort of point of honour with me if I'm visiting places where I know there's a gallery and I will always make sure that I go. And when Joe and I were started in Toronto, we went by train oh. to Vancouver. Oh, wonderful. Have you, have you ever done that? No, no. not that journey. Next no. time you... Oh. Next time... How long did that take? Out four days. Oh my goodness! And you have to get into a limbo. This is what I'm just writing about at the moment. You have to get into a sort of limbo mm. because it all. You have to allow that it's great because you are the train is taking you on, but you're not going anywhere. No. So you you yes. enter into a sort of state, but not like an aeroplane because you wander around, you have mm. meals, you look out the window, you read books, and yet you're travelling gradually through time zones and seeing places. Yes. What I really love about it is it gives you some idea of the extraordinary vastness yes. of Canada. Huge. Yeah. Huge. You go to sleep, you know, after 24 hours of travelling through nothing but s snowy woods, oh. lakes and frozen lakes that's all you pass mm. 24 hours mm. go to sleep you wake up <laughs> and you, you meet the last of yes still the same <laughs> still the same and then suddenly you're looking out the window and you go oh wait a minute oh that's a field of corn and you hit the great plains and then you just it all goes and you get the opposite you just get endless vistas of, of snow and occasional grain elevators things like that but oh, this yeah. goes on for another 36 hours yes <laughs> <laughs> it is incredible though but I mean, your your interest in sailing, outdoor life is is so well documented through the the wonderful television programs and the books that you've written. But was this something that started early in your life? Were you encouraged to do this when you were, you know, a child? Were your well, was your family, you know, active outdoory? 
people or not or really? Was it? No, no, not certainly <laughs> not walking people. My no. d- but my father had a little wooden boat. Oh, he was a doctor. Yes, and he loved his little boat, and so we were. He he needed he 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 used his family like a sort of human shield. He was the sort of Saddam Hussein of, of, uh, <laughs> of, 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 of sailor men. And we all had to go with him. And he didn't really want to mix with anybody else. So as far as he was concerned, you know, we'd be sitting in the boat. It was fine when we were very little. But we'd go, as we got a little bit older, we got to the age of 12, we'd sort of say, look at those people over there. Can we go over? Oh, you're able to go and see them. <laughs> ah, brilliant. brilliant. But he loved his little boat. And so we, I was brought up. Uh, he'd take long. He was a doctor. He'd take long holidays, a hospital doctor, and we we just sort of drift away into the East Anglian coast, up dirty little creeks and things like that, muddy creeks, mm. not dirty, muddy. And yes. uh, so I was brought up in living in the sort of the privations, shall mm. we call it, of a small boat mm. with my dad. And I've always loved that aspect of life. But but funnily enough, when I was a student. I seriously did nothing but but theatre and uh, and oh. amateur drama. That's all I ever did, apart from trying to get you know desperately trying to get my degree late at <laughs> night. Um, but but it meant that all every single vacation, instead of doing what students do, which is you know putting a backpack backsack on and going and exploring, I never did any of that. And then I went straight into working in television, and we never got further than White City, mm. and it was the BBC that suddenly came. And said, "Oh, uh, you know, we've retired you now from being. I don't want to retire. No, we have. And <laughs> <laughs> and then they sort of said, and now we're going to send you up mountains. So that's and uh, suddenly I found myself doing all that as well, and becoming a spokesperson. Absolutely amazing. But when you were at at Cambridge University studying English and history, yes. I mean, had you imagined?" Ever entering the world of comedy was this a, an, an aim that you specifically had, or did you think, no, no, I'm going to no. teach history or English? Or? No, I tell you what, our generation represented though. I went to a sort of hot house school, a direct grant school, mm-hmm. as they were called in those days, and they were they worked on a on a very simple principle. They went around all the schools, the primary schools, and they sort of gathered together everybody who. Uh, uh, who, who was going to do well at their 11 plus stuck them in one school and then started beating them until they went to Cambridge so, <laughs> <laughs> so we were all sort of you know we were all we never quite we were never able to work out what we were doing it for you were never able to to work out what we were supposed to be doing it for ah I see there yep. was sort of the I mean it was just it was all about passing the exam and finding a place at Cambridge and I went to Emmanuel College and the yes. year I went it was either five or seven, I think it was five people mm. from my school went to that college with me. Goodness. Just to that one college. That's incredible. Isn't it? Amazing. That we were, this this school in Brentwood was with, like Manchester Grammar School, it was just a sort of like a factory. Mm. And we sat, we had these, they used to give the sort of, the, you know, and we love being in the seventh form and all that sort of stuff, of all being the sort of leaders of the, to get off where you were going and all that. Mm. We used to have sort of, uh, general studies lessons in the certainly in the sixth form, fifth form, with the, the the school chaplain, and he and he once said to us, he said, "Why, you know, what what's it all about? What are you going to university for?" And there was a big pause, and finally, my mate Horth, who I still see from time, he said, uh, <laughs> "He said we're going because you told us." To. <laughs> Interesting, isn't and it? And I think we were of a generation who genuinely were very influenced by the sort of Pink Floyd. 
mm. and people like that. And we sort of fondly imagined that grown-up life would be finding a cornfield on a sunny day <laughs> and <laughs> and having a sort of hippie commune round the corner. And that's really what we were... What, 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 the, what we were... I've never, left, I've never lost that. I've never lost that vision no. of trying to escape yeah. into a sort of cornfield and, and wanting sort of ultimate peace. But the result of that has been that I think that generation also then sort of just worked all the time and became sort of real 80s sort of, um, mm. you know, people. But it was interesting. Mm. It is interesting how we as generations are most affected when we're at school and we're in our f- when we're 14, 15 or 16. Those are the pe- we're, we're the people who were most affected mm. by the sort of 60s revolution. It seemed like a golden era to us, not to the yeah. people who were involved in it, mm. but from the distance of a suburban schoolboy in Brentwood reading it and yeah. Oz under the desk, you know, that that to to us it all seemed fantastic. Mm. But the actual comedy aspect, yes. I mean, was it more you know, had you this vision where you felt, no, I I will be a stand-up comedian no. or I'll be a comic writer or no, for no, other no. people? What, no, what happened was, funnily enough, we, we, I mean, we all thought we were pretty funny at school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I think I came from a, a, a culture uh, where, of sixth form culture, where boys' school culture, where if you weren't funny, you didn't belong to that gang. Ah, interesting, yeah. What yep. was known as the clique because the headmaster had called us that. But <laughs> but we we I mean that was about being I mean, that was about being funny. And but we didn't do any stand up comedy. Nobody did that sort of thing, you see. That mm. was something that was an invention of the late seventies, uh, mm. very early eighties. Mm. That was th- something that happened in clubs up north, stand up comedy. And it was a sort of remote world. But my friend from school, Douglas Adams who was in the year above oh, me. Oh, my gosh. And he'd gone to St John's, and I arrived in college. And in those days, before the internet, it's very difficult for people to understand this, you had a thing called a pigeonhole. And you, in that, all sorts of things arrived, <laughs> missives. And they were usually just invitations to join various yeah. Christian uh, groups. But <laughs> right in the middle there was one from Douglas. And he said, we're, I'm in a play at the moment and bloke playing fag has dropped out <laughs> in the rivals do you want to do you want to go do it so I said oh yes please and at that point I'd seriously decided that theatre although I'd loved doing it at school but I'd never played any big parts never been allowed to I think I was a witch in Macbeth and, and Rosencrantz and things like that but I'd never I'd never, I'd never risen to the to the, to the heights of, of anything in particular but I loved I loved sort of showing off and so uh <laughs> And Douglas said, you want to be in this? And so I rolled up and I was cast and it was directed by uh, Sue Lim uh, and uh, Roy Porter, who became a very distinguished historian. And so uh, I did all this and uh, uh, I enjoyed myself. And I went to see my tutor and my tutor said, so what are your interests outside history? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, I'm I'm quite interested in theatre. And he said, oh, well, my advice to you is to take it easy. <laughs> How about, you know, towards the end of your second term, go and see what's on at the ADC and, you know, do things. But people do get a little bit obsessed with it. Mm. I said, oh, I'm in something already. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and his face fell. Wow. It's and he, you could see him thinking, oh, no, and not another one of these. And the truth <laughs> is, from then on, and then... Because of the people I was mixing with, they all said, oh, you must come and do a bit of Footlights. So I never really 
tried that and then I found myself in the Footlights review in my first year which was a bit of a sort of a bit of a shock really it wasn't it wasn't considered the thing to do until your third year but but as a result I certainly sort of threw myself wholeheartedly into sort of doing everything in Cambridge which had to do, had to do with theatre I was but mostly directing I did a lot of directing mm. and uh, and running the ADC and running the the mummers, which is another society, and running, running the footlights, and doing all that sort of political work as well. And then, um, and it, in, and then during the summer, I we go on tour with the footlights, and so that's where I learned to do yeah. everything, uh, especially being in sketches. And the next thing I knew, I was recruited by the BBC, and so it was just one sort of one terrible rush. And into... it's amazing in a way because the similarities in being a musician is that yeah. you. You do an awful lot of things because you don't know, you, you know what what that landscape is going to be, and and you you're trying to build the contacts, you're trying to get the experience. You may not be clear on what you want to do, and and so it's it's really interesting. And you are extremely busy doing things, you know. Mm. But um, but when you join the not the nine o'clock news, you are doing lots of different things on that well, program that first stage, of all. Well, by that stage, I did. We used to do a show called An Evening Without, which was a list of people. The poster was a list of people who weren't in it. <laughs> <laughs> and, But it was sort of footlights. It was the ex-footlights people, mm-hmm. which included Clive Anderson and included mm-hmm. Rory McGrath and included Jimmy Marvel, who went to set up things. And we, and we mm-hmm. did the sort of footlights hits over the last mm-hmm. few years. We used to do that. Uh, but the interesting thing is, rather like I'm doing now, go, you get, we go around and do various sort of uh, uh, offbeat venues because mm. there was no circuit in those. Mm. So what they call the comedians called the circuit these days and comedy clubs to go to something like that. At all. Yeah, we went to the first night or the second night of the opening of the comedy store um, and that did change everything, but not particularly for us because we were already... At that stage, I was already doing Not the Night Court News, and it already sort of happened mm. um, in a funny sort of way. And so we all involved ourselves in that rather strange world, uh, which is a strange world because it's a rather unique world of sort of television and radio comedy. Mm. It, it, that's a world which I, I was a producer there, so I produced everything from Frankie Howard to Weekending to sort of things like that. Mm. And, um, and that's a sort of writer-driven medium, really. Yes. It, it sort of gobbles up. Uh, writers. I mean, it just needs material, especially radio comedy. It mm. needs stuff. It needs to fill the air. We certainly did in those days. Mm-hmm. On television these days, it's rather peculiar to see so little comedy when it used to be, of course... I mean, there's loads of, there are loads of panel shows yes, and things like that, but they don't quite have the same commitment to making, mm. making so many sitcoms and things like that. It's just too expensive for them. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, I think about my father, who would be now 99 years old can you believe and and but and he was a farmer so worked extremely hard and very rarely watched television but the television he did watch would be mainly comedy you yes. know it it yes. it really would and and it was his time to just relax but the, there was a lot on offer you know in those days and and as you say you don't really see that in the same way nowadays we are an astounding nation yeah, I mean, but you're... so are the Germans to a certain extent. But we sit down <laughs> every Saturday evening and and watch people still sit down and watch Dad's Army. 
yeah, I, episodes yes, that so were recorded true. when I was still at school. That's so and, true. Uh, but what I remember, and where everybody sits down and watches Blackadder or, or Faulty Towers, mm. Uh, uh, mm. and every now and again a new one enters mm. this canon. It's a sort of very difficult thing to do. You have to create something which people are going to carry on watching forever and ever and ever. Mm. But um, my, uh, my memory of school was being upstairs trying to wrestle with maths question. I never got on with maths. <laughs> Uh, and listening to my father downstairs hooting in a very sort of, he had a very loud laugh, sort of a, a sort of hysterical sort of laugh, hooting at something of the something funny on the television, you know, that he was watching after work. And it's true, it was it was a central part of the landscape of mm. Britain. These great shows, um, uh, 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 Steptoe and Son, yeah. Alf Garnet, and the list of them oh, is extraordinary. They just came up one after the other, to be honest, yeah. and were very skillfully produced by the sort of television structure. I mean, do you think social media is changing things as regards to recognising a style of comedy? I mean, what's the British style of comedy? I is think it, it will. Style? I, I, I think it, I think it um, will. And I think it must, because we live in a much more accessible age mm. where people can now access everything mm. and... I know I do. I'm a big watcher of box sets and all that thing late at night and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's going to be, that's going to be. I think the the choice element that you can choose. It's funny because I remember in the in the nineties, the watchword was that what was going to happen was there were going to be many more channels, and the BBC was advised yeah. to open up more channels mm-hmm. because that was going to be the future. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are lots of network channels, but actually, we now know that because of the breakthrough in technology and the internet, what it is also about is is discovery of pay-to-view or, or effectively um, streaming. Mm. But for television purposes, and I speak as somebody you know spent a lot of time mm. in television or certainly involved in television com- uh, companies, but I don't think this has shaken down yet to what it will necessarily be. And what is interesting about it is that you still... Some things can be discovered, but it, the internet is like a like a telephone directory, with without, uh, but not in an alphabetical order. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, that's a very. And it, I mean, in a funny sort of way, if you open the telephone directory and say, "Oh, I'll find something good in here," well, you might do, but uh, yeah, and you might yeah. find the number you're looking for. But of course, <laughs> you need to be pointed to that number, and so the whole business of control of how this is fed to mm. us is what's happening at the moment. We're in the middle of a revolution on that basis with Netflix and they're all fighting to try and, and they will continue to fight quite a good time I mean if I wasn't so old um, <laughs> that's quite a good time to be involved in the business being a writer or creating television because there is some, there will be temporarily such a demand but what tends to happen I think culturally is when these things happen there's a sort of breakthrough and funnily enough um, it's true in rock music when I was mm-hmm. growing up as a, a boy pop music there was mm-hmm. an amazing sort of fecundity and amazing invention but some of those great pop stars were not only the first great pop stars they might be in a funny sort of way the last great pop stars the, yeah, we, don't you find that mm. that elton john the yes. who uh, uh the beatles oh. the they all effectively came from the same era of the long playing record and for n- musicians today trying to establish themselves with the same reach because there isn't the control over the the media mm-hmm. that they had, which was buy this record or nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. you have you have to. That's exactly how it came. 
I know it myself. If you're sitting on Spotify and you find your way your way, way through it, you you've got such a huge choice, such yes. an enormous sort of landscape mm. open in front of you mm. that it's difficult to have those hits. I, mm. I was with a friend who that's was saying, and that I don't think those musicians were any better. And I said, no, 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 I don't think that's the point. I think what it was was that somehow everybody listened to them. Yeah. And so everybody knew them because yes. the hit system, the the LP, meant that everybody somehow bought into the Beatles. Yep. It's much more complicated, don't you think, now for a yes. young musician to say everybody buy into this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting, what you've just said, is that, you know, everybody, when they bought something of the Beatles or the Who or whatever, that that they bought that with the purpose of listening to them. You know what I mean? Yes. Actively listening, whereas now, of course, we can dabble into this and that and spend a few seconds listening to that and then make a quick decision. No, I'll just switch over or look at something else or listen to something else. So what a commitment it was to us. Well, yes, yes. Buying albums was what we did yes. and getting a collection of albums used up all our pocket money and, yeah. my goodness me, we yeah. had to sort of apply ourselves to it. Yeah. We spent lunch times... Um, in record shops, sort of sifting through LPs to sort of just get to see if mm. we were going to get the emanation from this LP of what it might mm. be like. You know, that was all part of that thing. But it's, mm. it is to do with the limitation of the choice and the control of that mm. choice, which essentially mm. the whole record companies, mm. the record companies in those days, had and they don't have to the same degree. Do you think? I don't no, know. No, I, do you I feel that in music? I, I think that. You know, so much of the decision making nowadays is made by the musicians themselves because they can. Yeah. You know, they can control how how they get the products out there, how they promote the products, the different avenues of that. There isn't just the one system that has to fit all. I think that, I mean, I remember when websites came about, and and uh, I had to give a speech to the. Association of British Orchestras and literally websites were were so new at the time and we had just started creating our own website and in my little presentation I felt that you know websites would be an important tool for not just organizations but for individual musicians like myself mm. you know that this was now a, a tool that I could use I could manipulate I could feed into I could mm. you know contribute to and mm. so on and I could connect with um, my customers you mm. know directly and uh, one gentleman came up afterwards he said well thank you for that but no I totally disagree with you I don't think this this is going to work at all for 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 us in our industry and I I feel that this is just a fad and it's you know it's all going to pass by and so on. well look at us you know websites have been you know, absolutely extraordinary and given independence, I think, for people. We don't know. It's fascinating because we're, this we is so know. young. We don't know where it's going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We don't know how it's we going to end up. Don't know. We do know that, alas, the uh, as Tom Stoppard was saying, who would have thought the internet would turn into something so evil? Mm. I mean, when it all started, it yep. started in that sort of that sort of hope and what yeah. a marvellous breakthrough and it's all for the good yeah. it's also released demons it's mm. let out demons which which previously somehow were controlled That's true. you know including the information uh, was was sort of controlled by newspapers and people talk about freedom of speech but suddenly mm. you realise what freedom of speech means yep. mm. uh, if it's untrammeled and un, unedited and unmitigated mm. all those things are so fascinating in mm. terms of knowing what it's all going to mean and whether 
because obviously now we're just talking about legislation to control what the internet does because it's a bit like the uh, it's a bit like the printing press mm. when the printing press came it was considered evil by <laughs> yes. the church and various people because what it did was make things available including translations of the bible which were not um, under the control of the church mm. and of course was it evil or was it not evil? Well, of course, it wasn't really evil. It was doing an amazing thing. But it's also quite interesting that now the government is saying, oh, you must control uh, to, to Facebook what's on your... Whereas, in fact, Facebook is like the printing press. It's, yeah. it's as... An, this, is what, this is what they want to explain to the, yes. to, the, uh, to the politicians, but they're not getting very far with it. To say, we're not the publishers of this. We're just a printing press. Yes, yes. One of the amazing things about the internet is that it's created a thing which has made millionaires, billionaires, yeah. billion, billion, billionaires <laughs> out of getting other people to do the work. That's ah, true. Because you buy the program, you get into the system, but you do the work. They don't yeah. do anything, and that's why they're so they're so bemused. What these 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 guys who invent Instagram or invent invent yeah. as to what to do with the money because yeah. they they can't it's not like a factory where you can make more and more of a certain product they've made the product mm. everybody else is doing the work mm. they're just using it and licensing it but it is it is like a printing press it's sort of in a strange way sort of um amoral without a sort mm. of without a, a particular cut but it can be used mm. for good yeah. or for evil and it's it's awful that it reveals the whole of the internet how much evil there is in the world how much mm. terrible thinking how much ability people have to lie and believe in those lies mm. to attack each other but mm. under the guise of um, of uh, being you know supposedly free comment and all that stuff mm. and so i have to say mm. i never go anywhere near it and i suppose <laughs> you know you're in the kind of industry where you have to do a lot of how can i put it inner thinking I mean you're in such a precarious kind of um, uh, profession as a comedian mm. I mean you are so many other things but but it's always as though you're walking on that tightrope and people can either laugh or not laugh at what you do with my situation as a musician I can interpret a piece of music and people can either like it or not like it but they can walk away you know, feeling, well, I didn't really enjoy that or I mm. did enjoy it, but that's an opinion. Um, and I think, you know, I can get up the next morning and still go back to the drawing board and, and you know, get a myriad of comments, but ultimately you have to listen to yourself. And, yes. you know, in your situation, I mean, you mentioned that obviously a large part of your career has been for television. I mean, is there a, a difference in in how you function how you listen to yourself to the material that you produce to a live audience as opposed to in a television setting where perhaps you can retake something you know well, you can I, I don't I'm know I'm not a do you see for me I don't want to do myself down too much but it's funny thing because I wasn't a stand-up comedian Mel and I were a double act we used to do tours around the country uh and we'd do material, and it was very funny material as well. Mm. We were very pleased to do it. And, it, and it, we always appealed to a certain sort of audience. We, we never used um, the material. We did because we were sort of amateurs, we always felt. Um, <laughs> you know, we never used the material as a, as, a, as a soapbox to say what should be said, or, or even very, we were never very brave about it. So, uh, uh, because there are people who I genuinely think uh, in this 
business that I get into and I meet them who are sort of close to being geniuses and they've they're actually working their way through the material through the through the medium mm. to be expressive of themselves and Ando Iannucci is a, is a very 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 mm. clever man mm. and you think what a brilliant thing that he's doing there I, I wish I could be put my hand on my heart and say you know I'm following in the same foot I don't feel that at all but what I just I'm selfish enough to do this about five years ago I found myself, you know, I tried to, I was running a production company and I found the business of trying to involve myself all the time in being the producer and the things I did on television after a lifetime of being involved. This was just, I just went, why am I doing this? It's crazy. I'm actually spending 98% of my time coming up with brilliant ideas for things which I'd like to see made. They're saying, no, we don't want to make them or go away and do more work. I'm not actually doing anything. I'm spending, <laughs> I'm spending all my time in what they call development hell, sort of, you know, trying to present. And, and also because I'm running a company in which I have people sitting in office and people working for me, I'm also trying to cut my cloth in order to please people mm. whose opinions I don't greatly value. Mm. So instead of saying, you know, I want to do the very best, and I should have learned this many, many years ago, a bit too late, if you see what I mean. <laughs> it's like the knowledge of good and evil, isn't it? I've already, I've already, I've already, I've, I've made my bed and I'm sleeping in it, but wait a minute, let's get another bed altogether. <laughs> and that's the reason I decided, well, one thing I can do, which will be unmitigated, um, which, if I just get up on my two feet, yep. go out, stand in front of an audience, start telling them some funny stories, which is all I really do, uh, <laughs> and um, they sit in an audience and they listen to me. If they laugh, they've enjoyed it. If I want, halfway through, to stop telling this story, to tell a different story, I'll tell a different story. Yeah. I don't have to go to the boss. I don't have to go to the executive mm. producer and say, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do this. I mean, good Lord, most of the executive producers who I work with would say, yes, but you do that anyway when you're on television. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a sense that I really got to the point where I had to say to the people who work with me in this office, look, I'm, I'm not going to go on. Mm. And the reason is we've had a great run doing this, but we've reached a sort of 10-year lull. Mm. Uh, we're finding it more difficult to get work because they look at us, I walk in, and they look at me and go, what's this old bloke doing in my office? <laughs> I don't what's it? No, it's true. And oh. they also, you realise that they're totally respectful to you. And you think, I'm not going to do any business with somebody who's just respectful. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to do business and make a television programme with somebody yeah. who, who's prepared to talk to me as an equal. and treat. But if they're yeah. this respectful, I'm not sure we're going to get this off the ground. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I decided to leave all that. Cut, 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 cut away from that. And the first thing I did was start wandering around the country, finding little places to talk and just going and doing it. It's great. It's amazing. I mean, the truth is, it's I've learnt an enormous amount through doing yeah, that. Yeah. I still don't believe I've made by any means what I would call a contribution yet. Oh, seriously. <laughs> and I've said to the promoter, I said, he said, oh, we'll take this into London. So, oh, no, we won't do that. I said, look, I'm learning to be a stand-up comedian. I'm learning the difference between good material and bad material and what works and what, what's cheap. I'm, I'm afraid you'll, if you come along tonight, <laughs> you'll, you'll see a lot of cheap laughs in that because I'm still learning. So, And you also see things which I'm really quite proud of, and I think, oh, I should do more of this sort of thing. So I made an agreement that I would do three tours, and I'm, I have done three tours now, and then maybe we'd take the best of that and you know, and put a proper show together, which we could take into London but I haven't got there yet and do you know I'm perfectly content I rather like this thing I might tell a story 
tonight about tribute bands. <laughs> because I go around, and I spend a lot of time when I arrive, uh, you arrive at these particular theatres, and sometimes you think, well, wow, look at this, Lionel Richie. Well, of course, it's not Lionel Richie, it's fake Lionel Richie. So, look at this, look at this, it's the Bee Gees turning up. Of course, it's, not, it's a fake, but... And so I assume I'm going to turn up in one of these places sometime. This could be a fake Mel and Griff. Uh, <laughs> And so this is the sort of story which leads me into when we... Funnily enough, there, is, there are people who want to be a fake Mel and Griff. They've written me a letter. <laughs> in I mean, Finland. In Finland. Oh, and that's because oh, no. in Finland we were very popular in Finland. But the point is, this is a story that I've introduced, started telling, and I started telling this story about three, two performances ago. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's not... It's not... It's not I don't sit down, I'm afraid, and sit in a room and spend, you know, I'm too lazy. I don't spend six weeks writing the show. What I do is I sit down and often half the show is just things written on the back of an envelope, which I start off oh, that my favourite bit of the entire show uh, is going off and booking into ten dates, ten we did, I think, in this tour, and I really do not know what I'm going to say <gasps> when I go on stage, except that I've got some stories that I want to tell. And after I've done that, I think, well, I'm certainly never going to tell that story again. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, because I was going to ask you, well, you know, are your shows and routines and so on, are they, you know, fine-tuned? Do you spend two years working on them? Do you test them out on your family or something? And, and clearly, no, it's all written on a postage stamp. No, and <laughs> Oh, you see, I do spend my time at so There was a funny story that but I started. But that, sorry to interrupt, but that's a skill. No, 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 it's, it's it just, it's just a, a laziness. Skill. It's a laziness. It's a skill. I'm sitting at dinner with a very good Australian friend, and she was talking to me, and I was talking about honorary degrees and all that sort of stuff. And the fact that um, I'd suffered the most terrible thing with with Cardiff University, which had <laughs> rung me up and said, because they'd offered me, that they'd made, given me a fellowship and a honorary fellowship and then they'd made me they'd asked me if I'd be patron of a sustainability thing and of course I said yes you know and then I it was only later that I realized I hadn't really I didn't know what sustainability meant but it just <laughs> it was <laughs> then I found out that of course this is all and I'm, I'm once half, half of my thing is going around joining groups to stop them putting up wind farms in yes. areas of Africa and they're trying and this, this is the group that's trying to put up the wind farm so I had to sort of go and negotiate I said look Really sorry. I just I don't know if this is a very good idea. And I said, I wonder if it's possible. And just before I could get this out, the vice chancellor said, "He said we just we just it's just we'd like you to be the chancellor of our university." Oh wow! And I said, I said, no, 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 no. You don't honestly. You don't want me. Look, look at me. I'm, I'm not really. It's very kind of you to ask me and all this sort of thing, but I'm not even really Welsh. I mean, I, I was brought up in Essex, and you know, I can imagine you all these things. And he said, no, no, no. and I. I just like many of the, I don't know if you've been in this position where they, they're just you just you find it so difficult to find a way of saying no. I mean, it's such a huge honour. And I went back and saw Joe, and I said, you know what this means? This means two weeks of being in Cardiff every year, handing out making speeches in Welsh. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have to learn them. I'm gonna have to learn Welsh. She said, well, your mother will be terribly pleased. So I said, all right. And then and then, but the the, but the climax of the story is that. I, t- I arrive in Cardiff to, to, to just a week before, and they take photographs of me all in the, the And it goes before convocation, and convocation, basically a man gets up 
the university and says, do we want a low comedian from the television representing us as... <laughs> he may be very good on panel shows, but, you know, and so all this started to happen and they all went, no, and so they turned me down. And nothing could possibly be more humiliating and embarrassing. I mean, it was just art and it was not of my own making. I don't, in the end, they then fell to a sort of huge public argument between between the governing body who wanted me to do it and, the, and members of the faculty who didn't. And I had to write them a letter and say, stop it. Just, I've never been so embarrassed in my life. I didn't apply for this job. You're trying to make me do it. I don't, I don't, you know, I just, you, really, it's just not. But I told this story to Gabrielle over, uh, and she was falling about, you know, much as we're talking now. And uh, then I've tried to tell it several times on stage. And, t- and got quite, it's quite funny. Quite a lot of it's quite funny. But by the time I get to the point where the audience, where, where the convocation stand up and turn me down, the audience is going, oh. <laughs> of course I find it hilarious <laughs> but the audience feels so sorry for me by that stage I can't really tell it as a story on stage so the story on stage is too miserable as yes. far as they're concerned so they just don't want to hear anymore no stop Greg. please don't tell us this story please please stop tell us something else so I've, start, I've sort of gradually removed it from my... <laughs> From the act, you see, but there we are. Who knows? Brilliant, brilliant. But when you were working with Mel, I yeah. mean, did, was there this freedom, the same kind of freedom? No, or, no, or no, was no, it no, very, no, very... No, because, no, because well, working with Mel was more like, I imagine, uh, for you, working with a, a, a rigid piece of music. Yeah. You can't just go off on your own and start you know, <laughs> well, making it up as you go along. <laughs> or say thinking, no more. <laughs> or thinking... Or thinking this bit isn't working. Let's just go on to the <laughs> or next Or I don't bit. like your tempo. I'm going to do... <laughs> yeah. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you're with a double act, so Mel and yeah. I would... I would sit down, because I don't know if you've ever seen... Have you ever, have you seen the uh, Laurel and Hardy film with Steve Coogan in it? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what it was like. Yeah, interesting. And I was the Stan Laurel, the slightly intense one who deal who have arguments with the producers yeah. and everything. And Mel was the lying in bed, you know, smoking a cigar, reading The Sporting Life. Um, Hardy. And so I'd write these things. And I'd say, we're going to do, we're going to do this new, all this new stuff. Mm. And we'd say, oh, so fine, we go away and learn it. And we'd go and sit on stage, because we used to do the second half of the show. It was just the two of us sitting, talking to yes. each other. And off we go. And we do all the stuff we knew was great. And then we get to start this new piece that I'd written. <laughs> and about two lines in, you realise that as a subject, it was just not what the audience really were interested in or didn't find funny or whatever. But in a double act... You have to hold hands, walk down into yeah. the valley of death, walk right the way along the valley of death, keep going. <laughs> Perhaps getting a little bit faster to sort of hurry along and then climb out the, the valley at the other end because you didn't have any choice. You just you yeah. couldn't I couldn't go to Mel I think we should cut this bit because yes. we're both playing characters, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it was no, it was um, Morgan and Wise used to say that if they wanted to they never changed their live act. Mm. And if they wanted to change their life, it took them three weeks to rehearse a new bit into yeah. it because they never, you know, they, they, they had confidence in what they used to do. So if you went to see Morgan Wise live, you were you were thinking, wow, this is what they used to be like in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't mm. it, really? But, you know, once Mel passed away, yes. I mean, that that truly must have been just... A fairly devastating moment in your life. I mean, well, we hadn't done a lot of work together. 
I de- yep. The devastating elements with this were Mel got ill. Yep. I, in fact, I remember all of us gathering for his 50th birthday party. Mm. And the gist of my speech was, I think a lot of people were thinking, you'd never get here, Mel. Because <laughs> 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 he was a he was quite a hard liver, Mel. You know, I mean, he, he sort of, you know, he liked to... Um, he liked to indulge himself. So, mm. but so, but when he did become ill, uh, uh, and he was still very young, mm. um, I think a lot of his close friends hoped that he, you know, pull himself back together. And he was. He did. I mean, he went into a, a series of bad moments, and he did uh, f- physically, mentally, physically overcome what were quite bad sort of strokes. But there was an element that he wasn't going to change mm. and that was the thing that frustrated mm. those of us who were much sort of we wanted him to clean up his act and mm. not go that way mm. so that that was sad and it was and it what was weird was that what's weird is that now i was asked three years after he died two years after he died to talk about him at a festival and i went down and i played uh, in conjunction with a friend of mine who's a sort of archivist of stuff we'd done and there's an awful thing if you go on doing something for a very long time, as we we did eleven series. I mean, mm, we we did a, yeah a, over a thirteen of, years. We did loads yeah. and loads of stuff. And of course, you know, as we got older and more and audiences got familiar with us and critics got familiar, they sort of tended to have a go at us because we've been around much too long. You know, and even though some of the material we were doing to the end was better than some of the stuff we'd done at the beginning. <laughs> but what was funny was uh, when we did this little tribute to Mel at this festival, the Slapstick Festival, I was looking at all these sketches going, oh, just a very good sketch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you get, sort yes. of you go on, and you and we got to the state where we'd sort of been slightly ashamed of our material and the fact we were both relieved when, the, when we just went on doing it because they just asked us to do more, asked when it finally went, that's the end. Yeah. Then we were both relieved. And, I, and we also made a sitcom called Three Flights Up which was about two guys in an office, which we were very, very... And we'd forgotten about, and the BBC didn't pick up on. And again, the archivist, my friend, who'd helped us write so much of the shows, said, have a look at this. And we looked at him, and I said, but this is great. And he said, it is great. It's a great sitcom. And it's really a pity that they didn't pick it up, but they'd obviously decided, at that level, no more Mel and Griff for comedy. You know, it's one of those mm. things that happens. Mm. Neither Mel or I were, were the, are... Well, or were the sort of people who would ever go, oh no, oh no, that's the end of my career. What am I going to do? I'm going to go off in a sulk. Mm. On the contrary, we go, okay, at last, we can do something else. And so we. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, though. <laughs> we went off and did something else. But mm. um, I started to look at this. And so my first tour was talking about Mel and the experience of a career together. And funnily enough, showing bits of this sitcom because I really genuinely thought that if I show this sitcom on tour, as I did, it'll be watched by more people than than if it was broadcast on BBC Two these days. And it probably was. And so I showed the sitcom, but gradually my chat got longer and longer. And <laughs> the sitcom I cut down and just showed little extracts for it as my chat got longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and I remember th- I used to start by saying, you know, this is embarrassing because I know that Mel is, you know, up there looking down. Well, actually, he's probably down there looking up at me, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but he he would be going, what are you doing going up? Because oh, Mel always wanted and assumed that we would, you know, all through this, he went off and directed films and I did this. So he assumed that we'd, at some point, we just 
do what I'm doing now. We just yeah. get back into harness and off we go again and we'd be, and that's really disappointing in a funny mm. way because mm. I never had a more wonderful time yeah. uh, on stage than sitting with Mel doing, you know, some very bad jokes together. But we but we really, we're just with a big audience in somewhere like the, the, uh, the Playhouse in Edinburgh, you know, mm. that massive theatre there. And uh, you sort of just, it was just joy. Like like being in like being in rock and roll, you know, just the audience really, and you remember those moments, but you need to remember them, don't you? Yes, that's very interesting. You do every now and again yes. with a career, especially when you if you're hitting a thing where you go, <clears throat> you need to think, no, 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 mm. pay me out, pay us our due. We had our very yes. very big and giant moments, which were great. Mm. And it seems that when you do speak about Mel and that extraordinary partnership that it's as though he's still there with you. He's still in conversation with you. He's still <sighs> influencing a lot of the decisions you might be making. Well, you know. I mean, it's quite funny being a double act because you have to avoid being the sad, lonely clown, you know, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, yeah. When, when one of you goes. And so I never, I'm, 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 I've, we've always, both of us, religiously pursued independent careers well, and did things, you know, I was always in the theatre, I was always doing this. We always was careful to try and avoid any sense that we were in um, divisible because mm. you want to be able to do things which, well, like this, if, if one of us. Mm. But Mel was, uh, uh, and he, he was a bit, uh, and we were, it was a bit like a marriage in yeah. You know, because you know, only I imagine the sex was better. But the um, but what Mel he there was a point when at the funeral when uh, oh not a tribute not the funeral a tribute not the funeral but that uh, we had a tribute where we showed various things in a cinema and lots of people turned up and people made speeches mm. some very funny speeches and I was just introducing them one after the other and they'd come on and many of the stories are about you know about like Laurel and Hardy with Griff being the sort of, you know, um, worrying and Mel being relaxed and a great mate and all that stuff. And I began to get, like, the wronged wife. You know, like, <laughs> I began to, like, like Caitlin to Dylan Thomas or or whatever. I'm sitting there thinking, you don't know, you don't, all these people talking about the time they did this with Mel and everything like that. You don't know the half of it. How do you know? You know, you weren't married to him. Oh, no, I wasn't married to him. But, you know... <laughs> There was an element like Brilliant. that. That's not, isn't that funny? And that's exactly what I felt at the end of the yeah. thing. I can, you can see it. You know that sort of that 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 wife. You know, looking a little bit gloomy because all these people turn up and start talking about the great times they had with Mel and me going, "You do." You do. <laughs> but the creative—I mean, were there creative differences, or were? Were you more no, or less comfortable well, in, no, in that no, no, respect? I mean, I mean, Mel was quite a complicated person because he didn't like to rehearse. I mean, he was a very ah. skilled theatre person mm. and a very, very skilled actor mm. and a brilliant study. So mm. if he was doing something and you handed him a part, he could spend 10 minutes looking at it, 20 minutes long, and oh. he'd know it. Oh, Certainly goodness. in his 40s. That got a little bit more complicated as time went on. And he also got lazier about learning, like Hancock. You know, you get lazier about actually doing even that 20 minutes to learn it, but he was yeah. amazing like that. And, and somebody who's always found it quite difficult to learn parts, uh, it was quite, I would require, I liked rehearsal. <laughs> just a little more. Time. I liked, I liked to have just a bit of time to get ourselves <laughs> sorted out and all that. And I was always fretting over everything. And then Mel would sort of roll up and have a look and go, okay, love. And off we'd go. <laughs> And so we were quite different like that. Yeah, hmm. but those opposites are essential. You know, oh. they're often the surprising things that... that there was nothing better yeah. than me writing yeah. a sketch and we'd sit around the table 
I mean, read through material which people had sent in. Yep. And when we, and some great writers, used to really wonderful people used to write, we'd sit there and they'd, somebody like Jim Pullen had written a sketch uh, and we'd start to read it. And there was no, there was never a question of going, well, you like it, I don't like it. It was, we would both be laughing. And that was the greatest yes. moment because all you want as comedians is to know that you're going to do something which is make an audience laugh as much as you do and it's going to be hugely funny and enormous fun to do and that's what we love doing the rest yeah. of it was oh no we've got to do better than this <laughs> but we always laughed at pretty much the same things and that's what yeah, kept us together that's interesting that's interesting i'm just you know i'm looking over at the clock right now because i said to you would only just have a very you know, because you've got a show tonight and you want to keep, or you want to catch the light in order do, to take photographs for your show. I do, I do. And I'm going to your show, so... I'm, I'm looking just... out of the window thinking I had better say, I'm going to, I'd, I'd better not tell another story, no. which will last, <laughs> well, as the, you know, another 15 fact, minutes. The fact and the light will go down as yes. Griff is still telling one of those extraordinary <laughs> stories for which he starts well, when I was born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've given us lots of laughs this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you so much. Would you like another coffee? Uh, no, I better not. Tea? I better get on my way. Thank you very much indeed. And I know the sound of laughter will be the main sound tonight when we go to your show. We're Let's, really looking forward to it. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. You know, the, I'll look know, out for the little envelope with I all know, your notes on it. I know. I'm, just, I'm thinking, maybe I'll have another go at that Welsh story. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.